Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 30th of May. It's Memorial Day. Uh, we have a special. Tammy is in some country. I've never even heard of some of the countries she's in right now. Like, where is she right now? I think she's in. Are we even allowed to say? Let's not say. Yeah, I don't, yeah maybe not. Okay, so she's in a country that I've never heard of. Yeah. I've heard of. It's like one of those countries I, I know exists intellectually, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Like, if I got it on GeoGuessr, it'd be like, I'd be a little lost. Anyway, Andy's still here. And we have a guest today. He is Isaac Chotner of The New Yorker. Um, Isaac, I don't know. How do you want me to introduce you? However you want. Okay, Isaac, don't hold the microphone that close to you. Just hold it like a normal, like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to hold it like a, you look like you look like a TikToker. Have you seen those TikTok kids who like hold the microphone, the little wire microphone? Really, This is a backup recording I'm doing because of my audio issues. So I'm oh, holding yeah, the yeah. phone separately. It's not. Don't worry. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it. So you're doing like the NPR thing that they make. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay, I got it. Okay. Right. So Isaac. Oh, that's um, good. Okay. How do people introduce you? Do they say, you may have seen his, you may have seen his tough interviews that published across the New Yorker. Like, is it, is it, is it usually that? Or is it they say that you're a writer? Or like, how, how, how would you like to be introduced here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, journalist, writer, um, interviewer, I guess. Interviewer. An NBA fan, most importantly. For yes, yes. Topics. Okay, That's so, why I'm here. Yeah. Um, today, what we're talking about, because um, is, well, we're going to talk about a few things. First thing, I think it, we would be remiss to not talk about what had happened in Uvalde. We want to talk to Isaac a bit about, you know, him, because I think a lot of the people who are listening to the show will be very familiar with his work and we'll be excited to hear from him if we just say, what are your opinions about the, you know, about the Celtics defense? I think that would be a little bit disappointed, even though that is the bulk of what we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, and uh, and then we're going to talk about the NBA finals, um, which is something that Andy and I have always wanted to do. You know, we always wanted to do like <laughs> all basketball type of thing. And so Isaac, I don't know, you're going to be a great guest for that because Isaac, for those who don't know, is a huge NBA fan. I didn't know this either until I moved to the East Bay where Isaac also lives and got to know him a little bit. And I was like, oh, this person just seems to only really care, have basketball takes and basketball media <laughs> takes, which, you know, we don't have to discuss. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. Let's steer clear of those. We don't want to get in trouble, but yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, Isaac, look, uh, I don't know, like what I think, like one of the things that I've learned from knowing you is that like, you know, and I think this has always been true, which is that like, there is a, you do have this reputation for doing, and I don't mean to say this in any sort of pejorative or even, you know, but I do think it's true is that you have a inter- reputation for doing like tough interviews, right? Like the ones that really go viral are the ones that where you are talking to somebody and that the audience feels that like you've gotten them, right? Like, do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, maybe. I mean, you know, I think people come to the interviews with completely different perspectives. And I think people who maybe agree with me might think that. But um, my, my sense is when I talk to people who read the interviews coming from a totally different perspective, that they often feel very differently about how the interview comes across. But but I, you know, I understand what you're saying. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I find it's that's inter- that's just generally true. Right. That um, you are not writing for the audience on Twitter. Right. Like that is just going to sort of screen cap stuff and be like, oh right like there is a sort of broader project you do two a week and so it's not like you can just sort of burn people every single time nor is it your intention to burn people right so i don't know like is there like is i the the reason why i ask is like do you like 
how would you like people to think about like the work that you're doing? I know that's an odd question, but like, you know, like, do you think that being like this guy who, who's seen as being the one who like, you know, is going to like sort of do these things and put people in these positions is like a wrong way to think about the things that you do? Well, you know, this is interesting. I, I, uh, I was talking with someone recently about the idea of a gotcha interview and what that mm-hmm. means. And I never, you know, maybe this is revealing too much. I, I never really got why that was a bad thing. Like if, if someone has things that they should be gotcha about, then I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really understand. Are you not supposed to ask about that? But I mean, but broadly, I mean, more broad, more broadly, I guess, um, you know, I, I, I just love interviews because I think that they provide, a real interesting way of consuming information that I just find that often news articles, obviously news articles do this amazingly well or op-eds can do, but I just love the Q and a as a format for transmitting information, information. And, um, you know, I, I always feel that 90% of the time I read an op-ed by an academic, I think someone should interview this academic rather than have them write 800 words about it. And, um, yeah, I, I felt that way about everything Andy's written in the press. <laughs> you know, like, this would have been better if Isaac had just interviewed Andy. <laughs> just grilled me. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, but I, so I just love the format. I love the kind of bolded text and then the non-bolded text. I love the visual of it. Yeah. Um, and so I just think it's a great way of consuming information. So I think most of the interviews I do, I just sort of try and give an interesting perspective, usually from an interesting person about a topic in the news. And I think it's sort of hopefully can provide a somewhat different angle than sort of a straight news report or an op-ed would about that topic. Yeah. Yeah. One of of the, we actually talked about this on the show. One of the big ones recently was your interview with John Mearsheimer about Ukraine and Russia and all that stuff. Um, That was interesting because I feel like the reaction wasn't unanimous one way or the the other. People didn't say like, you know, Isaac exposed uh, um, your shimer as a fraud, like the Phoenix Suns, right? He was like, there's actually like people interested in both sides. <laughs> That's very sensitive. <laughs> I'm a big Chris Paul fan, so that oh, hurts. I, hurt. yeah. like <laughs> I thought you were, I guess you're a Rockets fan and a, and a right, Chris right, Paul right, fan, right? right. Okay. Exactly, exactly. But sorry, sorry to uh, hit a nerve there. But I mean, yeah, with the Mearsheimer interview, did, what did you? Did the reaction kind of differ from your expectations, you know, on the, on right before you put it out there? Oh, no. I mean, I, I thought the reaction was really interesting and I thought I, I was glad people had such, such a diverse array of reactions to it. You know, um, I, I thought one of the interesting things about Mearsheimer is that um, what I think I think makes him interesting as a thinker and made him interesting to talk to is that he is, um, he's ostensibly trying to take morality or so he claims right, right, right. out of the way he thinks and sort of um, put forward a way of looking at the world that can remove morality. And, you know, I, at some intellectual level, I think that's kind of a ridiculous idea and I don't understand how to look at the world that way, but I also think that it can lead you to really kind of interesting intellectual places and make you sort of reconceive how you think about things. And so reading his stuff and talking to him, especially about Ukraine and Russia, even though I, you know, I think it's probably clear from the interview, I don't really agree with it. Um, It it really is an interesting way to, I mean, maybe I should have read more international theory in, in college, but uh, it, it, I found it really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. He was compelling. I mean, I think there is a reason why, I mean, I think there are two reasons why he became the temple around which for people who don't know, John Mearsheimer is a sort of, I don't know how godfather of this school of thought called realism and, the general thesis was, and he had written at some point, I think in what, like six years ago or something like that, about Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, in 2014, and, uh, he wrote 2014, about right. when when uh, 
the Russians annexed Crimea. Right, right. And he said, look, you have to just think about the world as basically a battle between superpowers, right? And that certain things are inevitable if you think about them under that context. And one of them was, you know, this idea that that Putin or Russia would eventually invade Ukraine, right? And that was the sort of prescience of that, but also the idea that the backing behind this is basically like, well, like, I mean, the conclusion is essentially what? It was essentially like, we should just accept this, right? Like we shouldn't, well, you know, we shouldn't I don't... get into protracted conflicts over things that are inevitable if we think about them rationally. Um, and yeah. That, yeah. I, I, you know, I think Mearsheimer would say that, you know, he, he actually did not think that Russia was going to completely invade Ukraine, but he thought that American policy in the region and trying to turn Ukraine into more of right. what he considered an American client state would have the effect of making Russia more aggressive. And, you know, right. this, you know, this idea that if Russia had, um, you know, reached out to countries in Latin America or Mexico, the United States would have looked poorly upon that. And so you need to sort of accept that Russia is a great power. And so even if we think, oh, Ukraine is this, you know, uh, little democracy that's fighting for its life and we should have sympathy for it. What we're actually doing is encouraging Russian behavior, which in the long run is, is bad for potential nuclear war and bad for Ukraine because it will mean Russia's more aggressive. Right. right. And one of the things that people took away from it was essentially that like, uh, you know, the United States was that somehow that like they felt, and this is a fight that happens, I think a lot, which is just like, how much do you blame the United States? Right. And that there's some people who blame the United States for everything. And there's some people who, get really mad when people blame the United States, even for things that the United States is culpable for. And that seemed to be the subtext of that conversation. I don't know, like the gotcha thing, I've only done one in my career, right? And I didn't do it on purpose. And like, I, this is where I always sympathize with you because like I did not- Is Jordan in. Peterson? Yeah, it was Jordan <laughs> Peterson. And it was like, you know, like Jordan Peterson, I was actually quite fascinated with him. I was somewhat, you know, like I won't lie about this stuff, but you know, like I found a lot of his ideas be pretty- pretty problematic you know yeah. but at the same time before like the thing that people don't so i did this interview with jordan peterson i don't remember when it was 2016 2017 something like that and in it he said that women should not wear makeup in the workplace because it's sexually suggestive and if they do right and he was like oh well why would you wear rouge and and lipstick is to simulate like arousal right and then he was saying like Men and women, we don't know yet if men and women can work in a workplace together without sexually harassing one another. But and that if if a woman wants, I'm trying to be very careful. I, I think exactly because <laughs> I the question I asked at this point because I was somewhat like I was kind of surprised. And if you watch the interview, I like basically laughing, you know. And if people know me, they know that I just start laughing at completely inappropriate, inappropriate moments all the time. You know, which is why I was not a good television. Um, television correspondent because I would just laugh and have the interviews. And so like, uh, but you know, I was like, well, if a woman doesn't want to be sexually harassed, but she wears makeup in the workplace, is she a hypocrite? And he said, yes. You know? And I was like, wow, that's, you know, right. And I'm, in my mind, of course, you're just like, well, this is going to be great television. right? <laughs> like there's part of you that thinks that, but I did not go up to Toronto to try and trap him into something like that. You know, like it was that here's a, here's a thinker that has a lot of ideas that are like pretty fringe, I think, right? At the time, he has this army of young men. I'd interviewed a ton of those young men, right? On camera beforehand. And I actually found a lot of them to be very sympathetic, right? Like, like these are guys who really did need somebody to tell them to like clean their room, basically. 
and they had found a lot of meaning in Jordan Peters. I don't think that they, a lot of them became worse people because of it. In fact, I think that some of them probably became better people because of it, right? Like they had more confidence or whatever, and they're able to do things. And yet when I read the book, I was just like, this book is like, you know, it's just about like lobster domination of one another. Right. And so the, I, I don't know, I, like, I, as I am with you, like it's the, I did not go to try and trap him. Right. Like you go because you were hoping that you can understand like a problematic thinker better. And sometimes they really do step in it and then you have to present it. Right. Like, I don't know, like one of the things in our area, Isaac, that you're always discussed that your name comes up a lot is around the San Francisco school board president. Right. Um, and like, you, you made a face. Okay. If you don't want to talk. No, about no, no, it, no. We can talk about it. It's fine. Totally okay. fine. Um, where that interview is brought up a lot. Right. And it's sort of brought up a lot as a way to so discredit the San Francisco school board. These people were ultimately recalled. Right. Um, I mean, I remember talking to you before that. Right. And it wasn't like, I don't think that you were out to like, gotcha this person, right? Like at all, right? And so I don't know, I don't, like, is there like, I think that there is some misconception about these well, types of interviews. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, you know, in the in the service of full honesty here, I mean, I think that I often set out for interviews thinking that, you know, again, this is sort of my opinion, so it could be right or wrong. Right. I've noticed sort of logical inconsistencies in the way a thinker thinks through things. Right. Um, but to me, that's not sort of gotcha. I mean, that's just sort of how kind of, argument and debate and sort of intellectual inquiry happens is you look for these things and you try and talk them through. And, um, you know, that to me is sort of an interesting way of interrogating, um, how someone thinks not as like, oh, they have a logical inconsistency. That means they're stupid. We all have logical inconsistencies and those inconsistencies are usually interesting and telling, um, of their mindset. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. But is there anyone that like, uh, that you, I agree. Right. Like, I think it's uh, like, it is too, like, I mean, at least with Jordan Peterson, I wasn't like going up there to be like, Oh, let's just talk about your ideas. I was like, well, I don't know. Some of these ideas are like, kind of totally like strange, you know, like, uh, why don't yeah, you explain I, it to me and I'll poke at them a little bit, which is fine. But like, is there somebody that you were like, uh, that you're surprised by where they, where you sort of came across understanding like what they were thinking a little bit better, even if you went in thinking like, I don't know, it's, some strange ideas here. That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think who I went in with thinking that they had strange ideas and then um, came, came across kind of more, um, more impressed. I mean, I think almost everyone I interview, I think I have think has pretty interesting ideas. I mean, I would say sometimes politicians, that is not true. Right. Um, I can't say <laughs> that I thought Rudy Giuliani had interesting ideas when I interviewed him. Um, I interviewed the Penn law professor, Amy wax, who's oh, a, oh, yeah. who's, yeah. gotten in a lot of trouble understandably for saying um some pretty racist things and that was an interview where i went in thinking um this is a person who is a bigot and is teaching at a major law school and it's worth kind of yeah showing what her ideas are um but generally almost everyone else that i interview even people that i strongly disagree with like mearsheimer i mean i i think that they have very interesting ideas um i thought you were gonna say amy wax right i was like listen no she, she convinced for, an me. Hour, for an hour and a half and listen at the end yeah. i was like i agree with everything she says <laughs> um no, yeah. no, that was, I mean, and, you know, yeah. I, I sort of felt disgusted after the interview with her, um, which is sort of how I felt reading her stuff going in. So I can't say yeah. I learned anything, but, um, but, yeah, you know, it's also an interesting question for me. And I don't know if you guys have thought about this, not necessarily with Jordan Peterson, but, you know, just 
whether you want to sort of spotlight these people's ideas because you think they're toxic or whether you want to kind of ignore them because you think they're toxic. And I don't have a great answer to that question. Uh, you know, we debated whether to even interview Amy Wax and I don't know if we should have or not, but you know, these are, these are really hard questions. Yeah. Andy, what do you think about this question as a non-journalist, right? I think Isaac and I have pretty yeah. similar opinions about like the idea of platforming, right? Yeah. Now, like I was accused by the former CEO of platforming white supremacists, you know, because I had interviewed Jordan Peterson. And I was like, did you watch the interview? You know, like, do you right. think that Jordan Peterson, do you think I was like trying to help Jordan Peterson's career along? Cause like, that's right. sort of what I get by the term platforming. Now, you know, like I would understand if somebody made that argument in a much better way. Right. And I would understand even if someone got mad at Isaac and was like, right. Amy Wax is a crackpot and she has really dangerous racist ideas and you shouldn't. Uh, people did say that. I mean, that right, was definitely, right, right, yeah, right. I, I absolutely right. heard from people who said that, you know, right, and that's yeah. a, Understandable point of view. Sorry, Andy, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Like, because you're not Isaac and I right. are like journalists, and so we right. have to kind of believe that it's okay to do that type of stuff, right? Like, but like, you yeah, know, maybe we're wrong. I don't know. Like, sometimes I think I'm wrong. You know, from Isaac, yeah, yeah, from the outside, it seems to me like, especially as like Twitter makes journalism slightly more transparent, it does seem like a lot of interviews you see are probably done with the understanding that they will portray someone as like complex and a little sympathetic. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't know if that's what, what activist journalism is referring to. Isaac's interviews, it seems to me like that you're coming in no strings attached, right? And that like, makes me wonder, like when you interview Amy Wax, like is she at all defensive or anything? Because I would assume that if you're able to get to the point where she is not allowed to edit the interview afterwards and all that, then like, I would just, yeah, so it's up to you how you would do it. And I think that's totally fair. And that's totally like, you know, up for public discourse consumption and all that. Yeah. I mean, one rule that I try to think about and not that it always holds is that, I don't know how you think about this, Jay, is that if, if someone is already being greeted with kind of mainstream acceptance, um, then it seems a little bit strange to ignore them. I mean, Amy Wax is a law professor at Penn. Right. Yeah. The idea that like, she's not just ranting on some YouTube channel. And so I, I, you know, and I feel this way about people who get big book deals from, you know, Simon and Schuster or Random House or so on and so forth, toxic people, you know, they're getting book contracts from ma- major publishing houses or they're publishing op-eds um, or whatever else. And so w- once they've sort of reached a point where people are paying attention to them, I, I don't totally get the logic of just, um, yeah. I mean, I, I know g- people, oh yeah. Right. No, I agree had the number one selling book in the world at the time when I interviewed him. Yeah. Right. And so I think, yeah, I mean, like they're I don't think Amy Wax or Jordan Peterson are anywhere close to the line. Right. Now, there are people who like, you know, I think this was true during the era around two, that right after the Trump and right after Charlottesville, when there was so much interest in these yeah. online like shit, shit poster communities and that some of these guys would be elevated into positions that were like completely a lie about how much influence they have, yeah. right? And so then you have some guy who has eight followers who some reporters found in some Discord, right? <laughs> and they're elevated and they have a photo even, right? Um, in some major publication. And they're saying, 
this person's like dangerous ideas are catching on. We're like, no, they're not. This person's fucking crackpot. You know, like they have no, they have no following. The only person fault. If you go in that discord and there are eight people, six of them are journalists. I bet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, sitting around and the other two, like, come on. Like, you know, so it did happen a little bit there, but I generally have a very, very high threshold for that type of thing. You know, like where I find, I find most of it. Okay. You know, but I think the only time I got a little hairy was around there. Like at least in recent memory that, um, and I, and I do think that things do work the other way much more where um, people are afraid to uh, to confront or to do their people are afraid to sort of do things about, you know, they're afraid that like I, I, I just think there's like too much of being afraid that you're platforming somebody. Right. I, right. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't prove this, but I do think the first kind of nine months to a year of Trump coverage from summer 2015 to the middle of 2016 really warped the way people feel about this because it was so clear that he was getting just insane amounts of coverage, lots of it uncritical on the cable news networks. And I think people then thought, okay, this is why he won the nomination, which true or not. And then, you know, this helped, helped him win the presidency again, true or not. And so I think from that moment, the kind of conversation about platforming went in a, in a slightly in a direction I don't totally agree with, even though I think in the Trump case, you know, there was a load of terrible media coverage of him. Right yeah, right, yeah, right. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they would show his entire rally on. Yeah, CNN. crazy yeah. stuff. And then he would go on Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper and get these sort of fawning interviews, which has sort of been right. forgotten because people just talk about the. But yeah, yeah, was, like the Jimmy Kimmel thing, and um, was it Jimmy Kimmel? Jimmy Fallon, who rubbed Jimmy his Fallon. hair. Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Fallon. Sorry, sorry, Jimmy Kimmel. Um, all right. Well, yeah. look at. I think that's enough about you. Um, I don't like talking about my own work either. So I'm sorry to put you in that position, but I did, I wanted to at least check off the box. Cause I do think people, I at least know two people that I told that we, you'd be on the show and they're very excited because of, and so I'm doing it for them. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have more than two listeners though. Um, all right. So Let's talk. Oh, look, I think that we would be remiss to not talk about. Is that the correct? I don't even know if it's the correct word, but we should talk about Uvalde a little bit. Like, I yeah. think that like the the two things that I wanted to discuss with both of you was the first was that, you know, look, what happened is horrible. Right. And I think that the country right now and you can disagree with this assessment. Right. Like, I think people on the Democrat side and then on the left as well are kind of like it's almost like they're trying to figure out what the response should be. Right. And that I think that in trying to figure out what the response should be, people are starting to come to the realization of how bad the political outlook out outlook is for the next, like even 20 years. Right. A lot of this has to do with the court, right? Like there's um, like these justices are not young. Like the composition of court is not going to change. A lot of is it looking at the um, midterms, right? And what's almost certainly going to happen in the midterms, which is going to be like, you know, the Democrats get crushed and the Senate is lost, et cetera, et cetera. And then a lot of it, I think, is just sort of, well, we can't do anything, right? Like none of our politicians are going to do anything. And so then there's this rage that is starting to build, right? And it's, I don't know, like, do you think that's a correct assessment? That's sort of where I sort of see things at right now. This for me or Andy? Either one. Yeah. Isaac, you go first. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that that's right. I mean, I don't know how connected those two things are just because I think the sort of rage over nothing happening after these types of events has sort of been building for a long time. 
uh, regardless of the political situation. But but I agree, there is this kind of overhanging level of bleakness um, because, you know, it's like this is the one chance to potentially get something passed, you know, federally and that's not going to happen. And then there's really no chance. And even if it did happen, would the court uphold it? And, you know, so right. it's yeah, it's it's incredibly bleak. I mean, I. I guess the only thing I would say uh, just in response to what you said about, you know, politicians not doing anything is, is you know, I, I think that on the left and among Democrats, there's sometimes too much focus on this issue on kind of powerful figures or lobbies keeping this issue from being taken up by Congress. And um, that's obviously part of what's going on, but um, politicians also respond to votes and this is just not an issue that people seem willing to vote on enough people. And, um, this country has very deep feelings about guns. A lot of people in this country do. And, you know, um, I, I think sort of blaming, blaming the NRA or blaming the gun lobby or blaming kind of these powerful forces is, is understandable in some sense, but in a way I feel like it understates the problem because the country is, is sort of so crazy about these issues that uh, yeah. it feels like even without them, we wouldn't be close to any sort of solution. Right. But, you know, somebody, you know, Paul Williams is a smart guy on Twitter, right? Do you know who this is? Yeah, he, he writes a lot about housing. He helped write some of the social housing mm. policy in California. Like, you know, there's this new social housing bill in, in front of the California legislature. He helped. He, he gave this interesting example once in one of my, like, you know, now sort of daily fights with david shore where he was saying that um if you look at like the banning of smoking right like anti-smoking legislation like you can't smoke inside of a bar or restaurant you can't smoke indoors at all you have to smoke you if you're going to smoke you have to be a certain number of feet away etc etc all of that was way less popular than gun control right and that a lot of places just kind of instituted it and people just kind of were mad for like six months and then they forgot about that. They were mad about it, you know, and that there are ways to do sorts of things Now you can't go in and you can't say, all right, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to take these guns out of this gun cabinet. Right. Like, and you just have to give them to us. Like that's, that is what like actually is going to lead to huge social unrest and all the problems that people talk about. Like, I do think that a ton of people would die under any type of scenario like that, but you could just say, you don't sell these guns anymore. Right. And like, if you, if all of you people like, you know, being like Republicans or whatever, want to create a huge fuss over it or something like that, go ahead. You know, we're just going to do it through executive order or whatever. Right. And uh, these manufacturers aren't going to be able to make these specific guns anymore. Now, will that change this problem? I don't know, you know, but I think that's kind of all that people on the democratic side have any hope for is a little bit, you know, some of these guns aren't like, nobody is arguing that they would do what they did. And like they say, Oh, in Australia, they did this. But I don't think anyone realistically thinks that's an option here in the United States where we have 400 million guns, right? In Australia, I think they see 675,000 guns, right? Like we have 400 million guns here. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I think there are other possibilities and I don't think it's also based on like the popular, how like certain constituencies are going to respond vote-wise. Andy, what do you think? Yeah. I don't know. I've been trying, I, this always happens whenever, you know, whenever there's a mass shooting, I was going to rack my brain, try to figure out like what, what the hell is the basis for all this like and i thought zach carter had an interesting post uh last week where he's saying you know when this happens people tend to go for like the big explanations like it's about the nra's greed it's about you know deep-seated imperial white settler you know cowboy culture but 
you know, there are counterexamples to suggest like as recently as the nineties, the Republicans supported assault, assault rifle bans, um, that I guess there was like a famous example of a Democrat who took on guns in the nineties and got defeated by the NRA. And that was like a turning point that emboldened the NRA to make this, you know, kind of go nuts with the sort of, we're going to platform any, or, you know, combat any politician who, who touches our guns kind of thing. Um, or, you know, Trump apparently like thought about doing something about guns um, re- until his cabinet member told him like not to, because it's a losing issue. I think the, I'm still not, I'm not, I don't know what the full story is, but it doesn't add up to me that it's like, it's about profit, right? Cause like, yes, there's money involved, but like, I don't know, there's like far better ways to make money than rather than than this, right? Like I would assume um, there is some like crazy ideological Southern culture thing, obviously that gets involved here, but it does seem like it's I don't not think it's Southern. I think it's like basically everywhere except, you know, coastal cities, the cities right, right. right? Rural. So rural, right. I guess. Rural. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause PA is all Pennsylvania. I'm in Philly. Pennsylvania also is like split. Right. Like it Maine does is crazy yeah. Okay, yeah so i don't i don't know the it do, i don't know what the full story is but that is something like as a historian i'm always you know interested in like what exactly happened right because you could test it out like well in the 1950s there was white settler imperialist american cone culture but they didn't have mass shootings like this right so something seems to have kind of broken the last 20 30 years that does, I guess, on one level, maybe make you a little optimistic that it could change. Like nobody sees it coming, then it does change. But like in terms of the foreseeable like horizon, like I, I'm like I'm kind of with you guys. Like I don't, I don't know what it is, and I think bigger picture. Um, um, uh, Jay, your fellow columnist, uh, John, what's uh, the linguist? John McWhorter. Yeah, he had a piece that I thought was properly like pessimistic about how this kind of brought together all the contradictions not just of the gun debate but like the senate the supreme court right right, right. Yes. um and how i do feel like thinking back you know i, I always i kind of think a, a lot of times about like in 100 years how will historians write about this period because it's kind of insane that this powerful rich super successful quote-unquote country is just like killing itself and politicians are totally okay with it it's almost like, you know, reading about early 20th century, like assassinations that, that keep happening. And like, it seems kind of bizarre to us today, but like back then, like you couldn't stop it. People just, every important person just got, kind of got, was a, was a target of an assassin, you know, it's like, and at the time it's like, they just kind of like had to work through it and get yeah. over it or maybe not, maybe it'll just, you know, but we're at, we're kind of at this moment where things just feel so egregiously like. I mean, I, I have this thought that all Republicans deep down know this is wrong. And there's just something, there's just something like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what goes, but like, you can't, you can't think like the Republicans don't know, you know, well, look, that this the, is wrong. The, the argument that the NRA is as powerful as it used to be is not true, right? Like the NRA has been kind of screwed over by all these lawsuits, right? Um, and their power has been reduced, right? And so... Um, now, it, there was this horrible thing, and I agree with people being outraged that the NRA also was having their convention, right? And Abbott and Ted Cruz were all, and Trump were all speaking at it, and their performance were, as, were about as ghastly as one would could imagine, right? Maybe even more so. Um, but yeah, it's not really like the NRA for a while was like the was like a convenient target, and I think a useful and also, you know, deserving target. And we don't re- like. I think that people get mad at the NRA, but it's not really the NRA as much. I think it's anymore. just deep seated culture. That, I think it's what Isaac said, which is that like politicians are afraid 
to take on gun battles unless they live in like New York City and they're the congressperson for New York City, right? Like then obviously New York has really restricted, like really strict gun laws and it's fine, you know, and it's a blue blue place and it's fine. But um, I think it's hard to find like, you know, what when the Senate exists. For- but you don't, what about all those polls? And I'm not a poll person at all. But that suggests that it's overwhelmingly popular to do, you know, background, background checks, checks, assault uh, rifle bans. Steve, Steve Kerr's speech was not that correct like i don't think it's 90 percent of well like even if it's like 60 or 70 that's pretty good right yeah isaac what do you think i, I see you brought the steve kerr bashing into a segment oh steve kerr. Than, <laughs> steve kerr um you know i find the polling um about guns very very hard to parse um mm-hmm. uh, you know it, some of the results seem sort of on their face they just sort of don't seem right to me in a way like sometimes things about like church attendance just doesn't seem right. You just are kind of like, I just don't really buy that, you know? Um, And some of it, you know, I think comes back to a point that David Shore makes, which Jay will now yell at me for bringing up that, um, you know, people still trust Republicans as much as Democrats on certain polls about guns, even though it seems from the issue polls that they trust Democrats more on individual issues. So I don't totally understand what's going on there. I mean, I guess my sort of intuition is also that the people who care about it, it's not one of their top five or 10 or 20 issues. Right. Sorry, the people who, who are in favor of gun control, the people who are against it, it is higher up an issue. And so that manifests itself in the way politicians respond to it. Yeah. But, but I don't know the polling on guns. I, I find very confusing. Right. I mean, like, look, I think that basically every, like my opinion is, on this is like pretty calcified at this point. Maybe I'll change it at some point, but I just don't believe any sort of um, polling, opinion polling about anything, you know, or issue polling. It's like, what? This is all garbage. Half of political science for a while is just sort of disseminating why all this was garbage. I've seen no evidence that any of this should change, right? I mean, like Andy, the relevant example to this podcast would be that like, if you ask Asian Americans, do they support affirmative action? Like 60 something percent will say yes. As you said, right. do you think that race should be a factor in college admissions? The number swings by like 25%, you know? Yeah. And so then you're just like, all right, you know, uh, what are we doing here? Why are we, <laughs> why are we paying any attention? And the only relevant results are like when, for example, California votes on whether or not to bring back affirmative action. And that's when you see that, you know, in fact, 60 right. percent of Asian Americans don't actually support affirmative action. You know? Right. Like, so like, I don't know, like it's uh, I think that you can look at ballot initiative um, results and it'll be somewhat accurate, but at the same time, it's just the people who vote in that particular election now for the yeah. affirmative action one, I think because it was a presidential coincided with presidential election that, you know, you can say, okay, more people showed up. Some of this shit's like 20% of the population. Right. And like, it's always going to be skewed by people who show up to these types of small um, elections all the time. So I don't know. It's all just junk to me. Yeah. I, I have a hard time believing any of it. I, I do think, you know, it's Monday and I feel like this is already faded, but it felt like last week that there was something, something was happening. Like this was just like the worst as the news was coming out. And I had this personal, personally in the middle of last week, I, I could not read the news. It was just like, it was it's like too awful. Yeah, it was like it was worse, and it might just because now I have a kid, but like it was worse than any other yeah, no, ones that I remember reading about, and it just seems so just beyond the pale, like unthinkable what had happened. That I, I, I would hope, right, that it's so bad that it actually inspires some change, or it, it does seem like everyone. I think most people would agree, like this is the 
uh, I don't want, maybe we shouldn't get into like oppression Olympics, yeah, but yeah, it does like superlatives. Yeah. But it does seem like it definitely got my attention in a way that was like, I can't get this out of my mind. You know? I think it was the worst. I, I don't, I think this is the worst I've felt about the future of this country in my life. Yeah. Last week. I mean, I, I just, uh, I don't even think that despair is the correct term. As like, I generally don't feel helpless, you know, because like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm not a helpless person in any sort of way. And I, in fact, have like a strange amount, like, you know, for private citizens to have some, like, I don't know, like, and then, and, you know, like, I do try and be very cognizant of what privileges I have or whatever. Right. But last week was like, I mean, I was yeah. like, it fucked me up. Like, I just yeah, like, totally, like, especially when the photos of the kids and stuff start showing up. I, yeah. I, I couldn't look at that stuff. It was, I think the yeah. whole country went through that. Well, maybe not the whole country, but I think a lot of the country went through that at the same time, you know? And then you're just like, okay, well, what does this metastasize into? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Isaac? Like, where, where does you that know, sort of despair I, go? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, without getting into kind of a debate about um, making this about Trump in any way. I did feel that when he came on the scene in 2015, that um, it felt lonelier in some way because putting, putting aside sort of the, his, his programs or whatever else um, there was a sort of way he behaved that I could not believe more people weren't disgusted by just on a personal level. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, who cares what this guy's politics are? Like you you just can't get up at a, at a uh, campaign rally and make fun of a disabled person. Like you just, you can't do that and yeah, succeed yeah. in, in politics or succeed in anything. And ever since then, when events like this happen, I, I, you know, I used to feel, even though the country was obviously grotesquely fucked up in all these ways, pre-Trump, um, I used to sort of assume that when events like this happen, that people broadly had the same response I did or mm-hmm. that, you know, the people right. I talked to did or whatever else. And now I just sort of wonder, I'm like, I mean, look, obviously most people think this is terrible. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that most people are in favor of kids getting murdered but um i, I you know I, I feel like maybe this goes to jay's point about just feeling despondent like i, I sort of yeah. feel like i don't understand the country in some way which I, is a problem i guess as a person a citizen and a journalist but yeah. uh, it's really hard you know yeah, yeah i mean yeah I, I think i've given up on never understanding most of this country um but that doesn't bother i'm not a journalist like you guys but well, you uh, have yeah. to teach children yeah that's why yeah. you watch so much nba <laughs> exactly you know well, it's like a tourism of the whole country yeah. but yeah it's it's you know the immediate response and it might just be the politicians performing for the cameras but the immediate response to consume this news in the least logical way possible and the fact that probably a lot of the country does that is just incredibly yeah like alienating depressing whatever the word is just like yeah i think i agree like the i'm not maybe this confidence we had as children that people broadly have universal sentiments has now been kind of permanently like disfigured. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, the, the, with Trump, I agree. Like when Trump gave his inauguration speech, I was deeply disturbed, you know, and worried, but Trump always had what comes after Trump as the hope, you know? Right. And now we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, I know. Democratic Congress. That's the thing. And then you just feel like, well, what more can we do? 
we can't yeah. win the elections more. <laughs> I mean, you know, like we're kind of like we win like fifty-two right. seats, but yeah, right, we're kind of operating <laughs> at capacity right now. I, I mean, let, let me just disagree slightly with that, which is that um, I, I totally understand that feeling. I, I guess I would just say that I think having fifty Senate seats with Joe Manchin as the fiftieth gave people. Right hope that they shouldn't have had. And yeah, that's true. you can blame Joe Manchin for that, or you can blame Joe Biden, or you can blame whoever else. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think that in terms of a lot of the policies people want to see, if the Democrats had 56 seats instead of 50, they would look a lot different. Right. Um, yeah. I, I understand why people don't like being told, you know, vote harder or whatever else that people like to make fun of. But it it's um, I do think those Georgia races, you know, which gave Democrats control of the Senate, really shaped the way the last year and a half has been looked at in a way that sort of shot. You know, I think if those if those had gone a different way, I think I think at least people's perception, um, even if the country was in basically the exact same place, perception people on the left disappointed in the last eighteen months, um, yeah. understandably. Um, I think it would right, look yeah, a lot they different. would be mad at Mitch McConnell again instead of just being like somehow like. All the anger at Mitch McConnell like switched over to Joe Manchin, you know. Yeah, which I think it's... is fair in some ways, but yeah, you know, like it is interesting. Yeah, I think you're right, Isaac, about that. All right, let's talk about the thing we all came to talk about, which is the NBA. Um, I this is going to be an abrupt segue, but you know that's what we do here on the show. We just like segue randomly to you know um, follow things as the spirit moves us. I've been using that analogy a lot recently. Spirit. I don't know why. I don't know. I think, you know, I was very interested in becoming a Quaker when I was a child. And there's something about hmm. like sort of the friends, the whole aspect of it and the sort of kindness part of it and the spontaneity of it that was very appealing to me. Um, I don't know. I still think about it. Anyway, did you did you read about Quakers in a book? Like, how did you? Yeah, but I can't really tell you very much about them now that I <laughs> yeah. except that in their meetings, they have these meetings. And you speak and like, yeah, no I went leadership. to one of them. Okay. You've been to yeah. one. So you had your own Quaker. You had your own Quaker. No, it was, it was for someone. It was like a, an event for someone's, um, was it like, like, a, was it like passing a away yeah. girlfriend or something? Oh, no, 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 no. It was, it was, it was a social, it was a, it was, you know, social personal obligation. So I thought you were yeah. going to say it was like a socialist. Quaker. No, I was yeah, trying to hit on <laughs> anyway, the Quakers. So like Quakers. Um, I've been using that a lot. I think it's like, maybe it's like me returning to religion in some sort of way. It's like, maybe I'll just speak as a, anyway, I always enjoyed the idea that everyone would sit around and then people would just speak as the spirit moved them, you know? I feel like uh, it would be better if, like, for example, like editorial meetings in our industry, Isaac, were more like that, you know, instead of these hierarchical things, like, you know, idea meetings, which I don't know if any of you are journalists and you've ever been to, they're really unpleasant things, you know? They suck. And they're supposed to be the fun things, but they're horrible because everyone's nervous and nobody's coming with their best ideas and yet they still don't want to get judged. Right. And so you're, you're using your B and C material and then you feel kind of bad. About it. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing, but they said everyone should just speak as the spirit moves them. But yeah, the spirit is moving us to the NBA. All right. So I have four questions that I wrote here, right. Um, for our NBA extravaganza. All right. So the first is that we have this series coming up between the Warriors and the uh, Celtics, right? And I want to talk a little bit about fandom at the beginning because I remember I was tweeting something about how this Celtics team was like the first moral Celtics team in history. And then the friend of the podcast, Nikhil Saval, um, tweeted something that I'm going to find right now. 
I don't know why I can't find it. Um, well, okay. Uh, yeah. Nikhil is a Lakers fan, by the way. So let's just start with that. Okay. But I mean, I, I think he's right about this. Isaac, okay. I want you to respond to this. Sure. Right? I said that the, this is the first series I can remember where the Celtics are the clear moral choice. Right. And this was when they were playing the Nets. And I was saying the Celtics throughout their history have been the, have been the immoral choice, right? Like they've been the choice that people should not root for until it came against the Nets, Kyrie and Kevin Durant. And which point I had said that the likability of the Celtics specifically and the horrificness of the the Nets specifically had somehow flipped this sort of standard on their head. And Nikhil's point was that teams are just an effective structure in which the Celtics are are, um, always already the enemy. Right. And so I think his Argument is interesting to me because it's one I think is like somewhat philosophically interesting, right? Which is that the structure of NBA fandom is set up, right? That it, so that the Celtics are always the enemy. And so in fact, like the NBA is really just two teams, right? The NBA is the Celtics <laughs> and every other team. Do you agree with this? Yes or no? I totally agree with it the more I think about it. But you seem to have gone back on this about this Celtics team, right? You've, no, you've... no, no, no. I, I went back and I, I've changed my mind. And I'm okay, okay. Them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so I should just say, I mean, I, I have a very close friend who's a Celtics fan, so I, I'm happy for him. And so I, I, I sort of like the Celtics for that reason. But besides that, I mean, I agree. You should root against Boston sports teams for moral and ethical reasons. I, I would just say a couple things about this Celtics team. I basically agree with you that it's a pretty likable squad. Uh, it seemed like good guys. Some guys have been in the league a long time. Al Horford getting his first final appearance. I will say, since you brought up the Nets, it is very interesting to me that the Celtics, at least until recently, had multiple unvaccinated players, and that never became quite a story. Including the guy you just talked about. Do we know Al that Horford. for sure? Yeah. Al Horford, yeah. definitely. Yeah, they're not hacks. And Jalen Brown, yeah. yeah. It seems Al Horford and Jalen Brown uh, were, for a time, both unvaccinated. and um, <laughs> That was very clever. <laughs> journalism i i, I don't, don't i don't sue me that's why that's why al horford missed the game with covid uh, uh well he did miss a game with covid it's unclear i mean and then you know it, it also appeared that the celtics were trying to avoid the raptors um uh, in the first round of the playoffs that is wild okay uh because horford and jalen brown would not right. have been able to travel and play to canada, in canada uh, or play in canada um and they were both asked about it directly and they both avoided answering the question they both gave yeah. kind of weird, yeah. Really they kind weird. of gave Aaron Rodgers style answers. They gave like, really weird, I'm not vaccinated, but I'm not going to say the words, wink, wink type of like, answers. From my perspective, right? Other people might have interpreted them differently, but those other people, frankly, are idiots. You know, like there's no other real way to answer. Okay, so Isaac, keep going. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, it's fine. So I, I, it is interesting that Kyrie got so much more hate for that than than anyone else in the league. I mean, it was because of the, the vaccination rule in New York, so he couldn't play. But it did seem like a lot of the other unvaccinated players sort of didn't didn't take the wrath the way Kyrie did. I mean, I have no problem yeah. giving Kyrie wrath for that. But, um. But yeah, I basically find the Celtics team uh, extremely likable for a Celtics team, and um, but I also can't disagree with the with what you the case you laid out. So you know, there you go. Yeah, Andy, what about you? Are there I, are there really only two NBA teams? I just don't think the Celtics have been relevant enough in my lifetime to for that to matter. What do you mean? What year were you born? I mean, I started 2009. Watching... He was born the year, <laughs> the year after they won the last title. 2011. No, I started watching in the 90s, and they weren't relevant until 2008 and 2010. And I actually vote. I like 
kind of cheer for the Lakers in one and kind of for the Celtics in the other. It's like, whatever, this is fun. But like, it honestly just feels like, I feel, I don't know. Now it's become kind of fun to hate on them as like the white, the white city, the white team. Um, and, and it's kind of like, I, I feel like this idea of like the Celtics and the Lakers rivalry doesn't really resonate with young people. And maybe I'm just at the cusp of like not resonating enough. Like I, I, I was aware of magic and Larry bird, but I didn't really watch the NBA at the time. And I think since then it hasn't been that relevant except for those two years with like, you know, 08 and 09 or, or 2010 when they played, but um, the Celtics uniforms, I don't know. They just look so silly to me. You oh know? man, they're great uniforms. I mean, <laughs> they just look so out of touch and so. Okay, well, what, what about this? What if we go a little bit postmodern here, right? Like, and this is my actual theory about it, which is that at any point in the NBA, if you look at different eras, there are always only two teams, right? Now, the Celtics might be the original one team, and the rest of the league is the other team, right? But it shifts. And that, um, you know, like, so in our own lifetimes, right? Like uh, the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe, I think were the one team, right? Like, and that was disrupted by uh, Detroit beating them. And that was like an exciting time, right? The Miami Heat with LeBron were the one team, right? And then the Warriors became the one team, right? Um, What's interesting to me about the NBA right now is that, and I think the reason why, I think actually part, some of the reason why these playoffs haven't been all that compelling is because like, there's not the one team right now, right? Like there's not the one team that everybody thinks is uh, the team that everybody sort of wants to lose because, uh, you know, every other team is sort of on the other side. Every other fan base is on the other side. So it was the Warriors until LeBron won, right? Um, and then it was the Warriors with Kirk, Kevin Durant, right? And then this year, like, who is it? Like, it's not the Bucks, right? Like, there's no, there's sort of no team like that. I mean, it was supposed become... to be the Nets, right? Until it all fell apart. Right, right. And I would argue it was still the Nets, which is why I think the statement that the Celtics were actually the moral choice in this equation where the Celtics are, are never the moral choice is right because the Nets were actually the Celtics at that point. I mean, not to get into like ratings talks, but it does suggest like everyone still cares about the Warriors, right? Yeah. And there is like this kind of gap between... Are the ratings good or this year? They're, they're, they're up. All for Warriors games, basically. Yeah, the Warriors games are the Warriors games are do phenomenal. I think like six out of the top eight rated games yeah. are all Warriors games, and they're oh, like playing. Really? They're playing like the Nuggets and the Grizzlies. You know, yeah. it's like these aren't compelling. I mean, as so a Warriors fan, I find Dallas. it all compelling, but yeah. So the Great White Hope that was that was kind of interesting. For I don't like, think. Right? Okay, here's my other thing. I don't think Luke is white. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I think he's like he's European, white, but I don't think European guys are are white. Like in the, the sign in off the this podcast right now. Can we? Yeah, we should talk about the Luca thing because I found it so confusing. Well, you're signing out of the way. I was kidding. I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> are you Luca? Okay. We no, I don't think this. that. I don't think that European players are white. Um, in the same way. Well, it's interesting because Larry Bird was white. Yeah, Jokic doesn't get any love. For, right. I, I I actually don't think this is even controversial. Right. Like I think that um, when you're talking about like the white player, right? Yeah. You're talking about there really aren't that many in the NBA anymore, right? Like it's Gordon You mean the Hayward. white American? Right, Gordon right. Hayward, yeah. Ky- Kevin, Tyler Hero. Kevin right? Love. Kevin Love, that's about it, right? Like who else is like a white American player, like Duncan Robinson? Like there is Max Struess white? I don't know. I would argue, I don't even know where he's from. Yeah. I don't know anything about Max Struess. He's <laughs> from like California or somewhere. But I don't think Luka Doncic is really like, now if he's walking down the street and you know he's walking by and people are like don't know who he is would they say that's a white person of course right but that's not really what i'm talking about i don't think like the white nba player i don't think luca really fits into that um, like, he's not sort of held up 
like, you know, like in unfair ways to be like the behavioral counterpart to like the black player, like, right? Like he's more his depiction on the white. Like he's, he's not like, oh, you know, like magic is always smiling and he's so flashy and he's all about, you know, like, uh, ho- like whatever showtime in Hollywood and whatever. And Larry Bird is just like this gritty guy from Indiana. Who's right. You know, who all he cares about is winning. John right? Stockton. Like, like, yeah, right. John Stockton, Spoken. et cetera. Right. Right. Like Luca and Jokic are not set up in that sort of way. So you're saying they're more Yao than Jeremy Lin. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. They sort of exist in a no race. But I but I think it's different because Jokic, you could argue, is like, yeah, he's like this towering figure. Nobody relates to this guy. Jokic or Jokic, Luca definitely tries to play like a Harden or a LeBron, you know, with the way he like the way he handles, the way he shoots. Like he, he looks like an imitation of an um, American basketball player. Right. And so I think, you know, people, and uh, I don't know, I don't know how to measure this. Right. But I do feel like a lot of fans who are white are watching him do this or sort of, there's like, there's, the, there's gotta be like a non-quantifiable part of them. That's like identifying with them. Right, or well, like, Isaac as our, as a, as a white person on the podcast, right now. do you, you know, do you to identify with Luca Doncic? No, I, I was going to say I I did a story on LeBron James's agent Rich Paul, who runs right. one of the biggest right, sports yeah. agencies, a couple years ago, and we, we were sitting and talking, and he said something that was very funny at the time. Uh, the way he said it was very funny was um, sort of tongue in cheek, but he he meant it, which was that he talked. He said it was very hard for Clutch to represent white players. And it somehow came up that he represented, you know, players from the Balkans. And he basically said, like, that doesn't count. Yeah. Right. Thank you, uh, Rich Paul. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. But why is that? Why did it not count? Uh, I think he was saying that um, uh, I, I'm sort of reading between the lines here. I don't remember the exact quote, but I, I, he was basically saying that um, white players from America are not interested in having a black agent. Right. And white players from abroad are open to having black agents the way a lot of black players are open to having black agents. Right. And uh, so that was, that was the point he was making. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And they, they look, I think it's all just about like what you stand for. Right. Now in baseball, this was very pronounced during the eighties and nineties or seventies, actually since the 1870s. Right. Or since integration of baseball, but even before that with the Negro leagues, right. Where you have basic and in boxing, it's always, it's like the narrative of boxing is this too, right. You have Rocky and you have Apollo Creed, right. You have Floyd Mayweather Mm -hmm. and you have like the stand in for uh, white people, which was like, you know, everyone from Manny Pacquiao to Ricky Hatton to whoever, Ricky Hatton actually being white, right? And you have this sort of idea of like white strength and mental toughness and intelligence going against like this like sort of flashy, very talented black player. Now, this is also the narrative of the NBA for a long time. And my only point is that I don't think that the white European players are actually filling that role, right? Now, you might have like a dumb announcer saying, Luca's a gritty guy, but nobody thinks Luca's like, a gritty tough guy, right? They think Luca's like the most talented basketball player who's ever played, right? Yeah. They think he's flashy, right? They think he talks shit. They think that he's right, like he's not sort of racialized in the way that Gordon Hayward was when Gordon Hayward was kind of good. That Kevin Love right. was racialized when <laughs> Kevin Love, like right. once Kevin Love became like sort of LeBron's like stand in the corner guy, it didn't matter. But when Kevin right. Love was in Minnesota. He absolutely was racializing that was, oh, here's just like a tough guy who loves to rebound and, you know, like look at his intelligence on the court. Meanwhile, like homeboy is winning like 26 games a season every single year, you know? And so like 
that part of it, I just don't think that the European players are like that as much anymore. I yeah, actually no. don't think they were before either. Like, I don't think we'd said that shit about like Peja Stojakovic or Drazen Petrovic or anything like that. They're foreign, you know? It's and- definitely, yeah, it's definitely different. I agree with that. It's definitely different. Um, one interesting thing I've noticed, um, when I talked to Adolf Reed a few weeks ago, he was saying he grew up cheering for the Celtics. Um, and I was like, that doesn't lap. surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was saying, he was saying in the sixties and seventies, the Celtics had an all black star. Oh yeah. yeah like Bill Russell. Right, right. Right. Bill Russell. Right. And he was saying it was in the eighties when David Stern, you know, who's celebrated for making the league really popular. He, he thinks David Stern did so by racializing it and making it this race war, right. Between working class, he called it the Archie Bunker franchise, right. Versus the flashy Hollywood black lakers right um, so we, I, oh go ahead sorry i didn't mean to no i'm just curious i'm just curious like what the what the root of that boston equals white fan like did it start in the 80s or is it you know much older i don't know i think it's older than that yeah I mean, the whole league was white though you know right but i think it goes back to like koozie and our back and you know like that that era but bird yeah. versus magic obvious like you yeah know, the the nba doesn't really start until real nba yeah right yeah that, that's actually an interesting theory i mean i haven't quite heard it expressed that way i mean what, the, what i've heard the critique of stern i've always heard which seems perfectly reasonable is that you know he he sort of did not want the league to seem too african-american right. or not right. just stern but people in the league in the 80s and 90s and so you know you institute a dress code so players have to dress a certain way and you, you know, I believe there was stuff about the way people wore their hair. There was some controversy around that and so on yeah. to sort of, so the league didn't seem too black to mainstream audiences, which he's been criticized for, but that, that, that read theory is an interesting one. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a twist on that in some way. We'd have to like go back to the tape to like CBS NBA games and see how they advertise them, you know, but I, I, I mean, it's plausible to me. Like, I don't know, like you do think about the Celtics and the Lakers as a black versus white, um, yeah, of course. Right? I mean, it was because it, really <laughs> yeah. it really was, right? Yeah, yeah it was. I mean, Robert Parrish. Why do you, think, why do you no. think Ben Shapiro, who grew up in Los right. Angeles, <laughs> is, yeah. a, is a Celtics <laughs> fan? Like, come on. You know? yeah. I mean, it's like, well, here's the other thing that I, my other take on this, Andy, from what you're talking about, talk about the European players, which is that I'm just going to fire off all my European player takes, right? Sure. Which is that I actually think that the European play, I, I kind of agree with some of the people out there who say that the European players are actually like the NBA's biggest marketing challenge. And the NBA is desperately trying to not seem like it's a league that is where the best players are all foreigners. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it's sort of their new crisis, just like David Stern thought that the crisis of the league was that like it was going to read too black. Right. Right Right now the people in the NBA are worried that the NBA is going to read too foreign and if you think about it, it is true. I mean, like, uh, it is true that it's not true that the league is reading to foreign. It's true that the last four MVPs right. are all foreign players, right? If you, wh- who are the four best players in the NBA? Every single Jokic, Giannis, Embiid. Right. There's no yeah. American players, right? Jokic, Giannis, Embiid, and Luca are the four best Steph, players in the league. Finn you would Curry. say, like, Definitely. <laughs> Come on. Top four player. Come the great, the great American hope. You don't think like, it's got to be? It's got to be. It's got to be some combination of Luca, Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid, right? Like, come on, Durant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why? 
Kawhi, wow. Kawhi hasn't been seen in like I know a, in like a in, in a in sixteen months or something like that. Right? Uh, like, I think Durant's lost his title for sure. Yeah, um, right. And I so, mean, so much Durant well, hate on here. Right. I feel like part of I mean. I, I will confess, I have not watched a lot of Celtics games, but I do think like a lot of the Tatum love is warranted, but also is like this desire to see Tatum become right. But ja the, Morant, the next Durant, Ja Morant was the big one. Ja was the one that the league had sort of was. You really think so? Pushing. You think they really, they really did push him? I know this through slight inside sourcing. Okay, that like the league is really invested in Ja becoming like the next big superstar. Now, That's... my pr- issue with this is that I agree that I love Ja Morant. But I just don't think that John Morant is ever going to get far enough in the playoffs to really sort of get that. And I don't think, I, it, yeah, I don't I, think it's because of the help he has. I just think that John Morant is a pretty limited basketball player. In a lot of I, I think just he's, feel like, oh, he's going to get hurt. That's my only take. Yeah, like, oh, I, I agree. I mean, I just feel like for the next five years, Luca and Giannis are the players that are going right, to dominate. Right. And like, I, I, it's hard to imagine. I mean, Tatum's great, but like, he was not even the best player in the series that they just eked out of, you know? And you like, mean Jimmy? Jimmy was the best player, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I see Jay already wrinkling his eyebrows. I don't know. Him. Yeah, oh, no, I thought that you were gonna say that Al Horford or something. Right. Like, no. <laughs> okay. He had the most <laughs> estimated plus minus added to no, it. No, Tatum is awesome, but like, I, I don't know. Jason Tatum is like a top I, five play. It's just not. Not all right. Good. We're just gonna j- dive into takes now. I watched the. No, we've been in takes. There's no right. Dive okay. In well, like, <laughs> yeah. go go to the. Go we to just the film. went through like seven minutes of talking about how <laughs> Europeans aren't white. No, I just mean like on court on court takes. Right, right. Um, I don't know. I watched that Mavs Warriors series closely, obviously with a bias, right? I'm a Warriors fan. Everyone knows. Um, I don't know. Luca's defense. Can he actually play any defense at some point? No, but that's that's a question. I mean, I, at some point. Zach was on Bill's podcast. Zach Lowe was on Bill Simmons' podcast. And they were talking about whether or not Luca could ever be like a top five player of all time. Right. <laughs> and Zach's argument, which I think is very correct, is that Luke, all the guys at that level had periods of their career where they were like a top defensive player, right? LeBron, um, Jordan, Kareem, obviously, Russell. Kareem, Russell, whoever you want to put up there. At some point, they're like one of the best defensive players in the league even like Kobe, right? Even though Kobe shouldn't be anywhere close to that list, but you know, people who think who are considered that way, Hakeem, right. Who's Isaac's favorite player, uh, Tim Duncan, right. Like who, anyone who's yeah. enters that conversation, even Durant, right. right. Like the Durant defense during those warriors yeah. runs. A couple years. Yeah. Right. And even that last season in Oklahoma city, when they lost to that clay game, like Durant was awesome defensively in those those years so yeah but he only played defense in the playoffs will luca ever get that to that point defensively probably not right and so that's that's a question about luca okay do we think luca is already better than the peak james harden i know isaac you're a rockets fan like what how do you compare rock harden to luca do you think luca is definitely gonna be better than peak harden uh he's certainly better in the playoffs which i guess probably the answer to that i don't think luca's ever really had a regular season dominance the way harden had for several years just sort of but but yeah, in the playoffs, he's definitely, I think, a better player. You think already better than Peak Harden? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, do, you, do you do you buy any of this? Like, actually, either of you, do you like? Uh, but Isaac, first, do you buy any into any of this question that the NBA that the dominance of foreign-born players in the NBA is going to be a long-term problem for it? Do you do you buy into that? I, I I guess I'm sort of I I don't I. I don't know exactly what the concern is specifically is the concern that like, well, they're not as resonant with the fan base and that, you know, I just don't know that that's ratings ratings are down. 
No. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know that that's really true or the reason. I mean, Joel Embiid was born in a different country, but um, is someone who I think the Philly fan base is, you know, he's yeah. a big guy. So maybe there's some, unless you're Shaq, maybe a big guy is not going to sell yep. as much now. Yep. So Always. is Jokic. So is Giannis. Been true. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the league goes through these periods where, you know, you had Jordan in the 80s and 90s, and then you had LeBron and Steph. And those were kind of the two ratings um, peaks of the last, you know, 30 years. And I don't know, those guys just seem like completely their own in terms of how fun they were to watch. And I, I, you know, I think Giannis is amazing and Bede's amazing. Jokic is amazing, but like they're not LeBron or Jordan or Steph. And so I just think it's hard to, I I, I don't think. Yeah, this is better. Yeah, this is better player than Steph ever was. Okay, maybe, but I just, I just think that. Uh, yeah, come on. <laughs> but no, no, I agree. I agree in terms of uh, in terms of marketing power, right? Okay, but like here's the here are the things that I here are the here are some other additional facts that I'll bring to you based on some inside knowledge, right? So when I was working in advertising, it became very clear to me, like just from having talked to people who work on Nike campaigns, that the most important person at the time to Nike was Kyrie Irving, right? Now you ask that, you wonder why that is. Cause this is uh, before Kyrie won the title. Actually it was around the same time, but like before that Kyrie had hit that shot over Steph. Right. And that Steph was at the, like the Steph shoe at the time was doing crazy. And this is the time when everyone was like, how did Nike right. lose Steph Curry under armor is the future. None of that came true. Right. Like, um, Steph made a lot of money for Under Armour, but it was pretty short-lived type of thing. But like Kyrie was much more important to them than Kevin Durant. Um, now, not as important as LeBron, but much more important than KD. Hmm. Um, now, the reason why they would say, and certainly more important than Giannis has ever been to Nike, right? Like right. Giannis doesn't have a signature shoe, right? Like he think does. about it. He does. Right, but it's but, not one that's marketed in the same way that the Kyrie right, shoe sure. still is, right? Even though Nike, I think, dropped him just recently. But it took like till now for Nike to stop believing that kids would really respond to Kyrie. Now, some of that is size, Isaac, like you said. Actually, a lot of it is size, right? The more the smaller players are more marketable. Michael Chang, who I've been thinking about quite a bit for reasons that you will see, the audience will see in some point in the next few months. Um, he was marketable in a lot of ways because he was small. Mm. And so like he made this like long, long handle racket, the Prince Michael Chang. And kids love buying it because they're like, oh, I, he, Michael Chang's like 5758. And they're like, well, I'm 5758. I should buy the Michael Chang product. <laughs> you know, and so he becomes popular in that sort of way. He's relatable. So jaw in that way is that is important that way. But I do think the fact that the most popular shoe salespeople are always like American born, right? I don't know. I just don't think that we've seen a foreign born guy who is able to sort of command that type of thing. I don't know. Maybe it is a problem. Maybe I'm wrong. I think, I think. I mean, I think there's something to this perimeter. The guy has to play on the perimeter to be seen as super marketable. So it's size, but it's also like Luca's big, but he kind of plays on the perimeter because that's how like most kids play, right? They don't play post, they don't post up. I think if Luca, I think a big part of this is you got to, and this is like my conservative take, right? You got to stay with the same team for a while and you got to win. I think if Luca starts winning multiple titles with Dallas, I don't know if he'll, what, what heights he'll reach, right? But that's like that's his ticket it isn't so much the foreign on non-foreign thing but maybe the non the foreign thing handicaps him a bit it is curious how Giannis does not get marketed better or is not more resonant he's like fucking amazing to look you know to watch on on your tv you know right and everybody um, likes him like but it's a dunk it's not a 
majestic three-pointer or like a killer crossover so i don't know for some reason that doesn't resonate as much um it it, it just honestly just seems like it's a different sport when he plays it's like he's triple jumping you know right. where everyone else is like taking jump shots so, isaac do you think if uh luka Doncic was luke donald or something and he was from like indiana do you do you think I mean, how much more popular would he be that's a really good question i i don't know i don't know i don't have a great sense of that Oh my god! I think he would be like the celebrity, like the huge crossover celebrity. Whereas right now, I think he's just kind of NBA celebrity, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think okay, okay. So we've concluded all three of us that Europeans are not white, <laughs> or at least the Balkans are not. White. It isn't well. Like, what is your theory for what they are though? Right? Because they're clearly not black, right? So what are they? Like, how do they fit into this universe? I just think they're. I just think they're like foreign-born. And they're not really racial. They are racialized to a small, to some extent, but not yeah. in a full, crazy American racist way, right? And that's yeah. a good thing. They're just illegible. It's a yeah. good thing, right? I think it's, it's interesting to learn about their thing, stories but I for sure. Yeah. An, I, I do think that it sort of doesn't feed into the same like racial race fight that you know, sure, NBA ratings for a while. All right, yeah, yeah. Next thing, Isaac looks uncomfortable. Isaac, I promise you won't get in trouble. Nobody who. <laughs> Nobody of any influence listens to the podcast. Our listenership is like a lot of Asian kids who go to like the University of Chicago and they agree with us about everything. So, you know, it'll be okay. <laughs> um, all right. Next topic. All right. I'm looking at my notes here. Is the NBA even good anymore or fun to watch? <laughs> all right. Isaac, is the NBA like, did you enjoy watching this playoffs? No, but uh, I mean, yes, but no, no, it wasn't that good. But I, I, I've enjoyed watching most of the past few playoffs. I think the NBA is in a fine space. I just think this playoffs is kind of stunk. Okay, what is stunk about it for you? Oh, the games have just all been blowouts, and uh, right, you know. Do you have a theory on why all the games have been blowouts? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I guess the obvious one is variance with three point shooting, but I don't totally get why that would mean that one different teams are blowing each other. I mean, it makes some sense, obviously, but it, it I don't, I don't totally get it. Right. And, you know, you have these, like the Dallas Phoenix series where not a single game was close, even though they split seven games for right. three. Yeah. I, I just don't, I don't totally get it. Um, yeah. I, I think, think, yeah. Three point shooting I, I, is definitely up. What? Three point shooting is definitely up. And yeah, that just naturally leads to like, instead of being up six, you're up nine. You know, right. yeah. I mean, I think one way the the positive spin on it is, I would just say, I think Boston, Miami, and Milwaukee, which are three teams that have been a part of, you know, probably the two series people have been the most interested in, really do have phenomenal defenses, and that's part of why the game looks kind of gross. Um, right. I mean, you can appreciate the defense at times, but like, it's also just, I mean, I like watching good defense, but you know, some of these games just look so sloppy because no one's getting any good shots. I like watching good defensive plays. Yeah, you know, right. I'm not sure if I like watching two teams like locked in a defensive battle. Right. When right. a team just kind of has to do like a fadeaway 18 footer because right. they rotated right. the ball around and no one has lost their assignment, it's not exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the best of, I mean, I, I'm with, I think, look, the just threes are not that much up from years before. Right. And so then the question is, were there a lot of playoffs in the last few years? And the answer, if you look is yes, there were. Right. And I think that what has happened is that I mean, a lot of blowouts, you, a lot of blowouts. Yes. Yeah. Right. So if you look at it, if you say, okay, over this number of years, right. Um, 
that there should be X number of blowouts given the number of three-pointers that are given out, will they be distributed evenly year to year? Of course not, right? One year will cluster more than, than the other, right? And maybe that's the only answer is just random distribution of blowouts is going, of expected blowouts is going towards this season. Like that might be true. And maybe next year there'll be a ton of close games. But I also just think the teams are pretty exhausted from having to play every other night. And um, right. And I also think that like, these teams are especially cowardly in some ways. <laughs> they just kind of give up, you know? <laughs> like, I was, like, some of these games, like, I think the reason why it's become kind of unwatchable is because, like, we're not used to having teams give up in game sevens, right? And it seems like we've had some teams give up in game sevens so far, right? I would, like, I would say, actually, Mavs-Phoenix, sorry, Isaac, was actually by far the game of the playoffs. Maybe it could only last one half. Right, but that Twitter was alive more than I've seen. NBA Twitter was more well, alive. yeah, because it was shocking because yeah. like, the Suns didn't show up exactly. to a game seven at home. You know, that's what makes sports so interesting, right? It was like but completely then we unpredictable. Also had, but then last night, I feel like even though the game was very close at the end, like the like the Celtics were ahead by thirteen that entire game. You know, yeah, that didn't feel like it, it was ever like, gonna. Right, right. It, I mean, like, they just had like two minutes of like disaster. But outside yeah. of that, like that game was, the guy was praying that it would get closer but it just didn't it was weird i i i didn't feel it watching it but then after the game was over i was like if butler had hit that three that would have been the craziest comeback right his playoff history probably they were down 13 with three minutes to go i think yeah and the stakes and the max three they took away (laughs) crazy right but no i was the whole time i was watching it I had no, I, I just honestly, honestly thought it would be like embarrassing oh, yeah. for Boston if they lost, not necessarily right, right, right. great, tri- like triumph for Miami. Like, um, so, so in boxing sometimes, right, you watch these fights and like one person is really just like humiliating the other guy and has won every single round, right? And then occasionally what happens is like in the sixth round, the guy who's getting beat up just lands a very lucky punch and hurts the other guy and then the fight is over, Right. That's what it would have felt like if Boston had lost yesterday. And after those types of fights, you're never like really in awe of the person who knocked the guy out, you know, you're right. just kind of like depressed, not depressed, but like you feel kind of bad, right? Because it's, it's not a good feeling. You're just like, oh, this guy just got lucky, you know? Oh, and, you mean if, if Miami had won? Yeah, if Miami right, had right, won, right? Because right? Like, they're clearly the worst team and they were playing right. badly that entire game. And Jimmy Butler is the only person who was like bothered to yeah. show up. Like, I, I I think these I, I I know I maybe I'm skipping ahead here, but I I, I think the finals are going to be interesting and fun. Yeah, I hope I, so. I mean, I kind of for my blood pressure, I don't want it to be very interesting. Um, well, I want to be lopsided for the Warriors, basically. But yeah, I'll take a longer series too if they win. Okay, <laughs> lightning round. Right, we're going full sports podcast here. All right, Andy, you grew up in the Bay Area, or you grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and you now reside in Philadelphia. Why are you a Warriors fan? Um, the short answer is Steph. I think he's my favorite player I've ever seen. And I was on the bandwagon before they won the titles and the Steve Kerr system and all that. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to defend myself. It's a totally bandwagon move. I will say, as a, someone from Seattle, the backstory is like they took my team away, and I had to think about like, and I was like, I was like watching, and I was like, well. Um, what do I, what do I watch? Like, do, do I cheer for the Blazers now? That feels kind of weird. Um, and so I decided just to kind of glom onto like whatever I found like the most compelling team. Um, you didn't feel and, like some Pacific Northwest desire to root for the Portland trailblazers. 
No, nah, they didn't ever mean anything to me. And the team, I mean, they had Brandon Roy. He's from Seattle. So I guess I could have jumped onto that. But honestly, it's been, li- I will say it's been liberating. And maybe I'm like the worst kind of sports fan where I only cheer for like, I only really pay attention to like the four important teams and don't really cheer or care about the lottery teams. But it's it's fun because it's in playoffs. So like it's always like my team <laughs> is in the mix. Um, I don't know. Like, but it's probably the same for you, Jay. Like you didn't have a hometown team growing up, did you? Or was it was it Boston? No, it's the Boston Celtics. Yeah. Okay, but, but you watch uh, every finals by just basically choosing which of the two teams you want to cheer for, right? Right. I'm in a bit of an impasse right now because for many years I just rooted for LeBron James to win because I thought that LeBron James deserved to win because he was so great. You know, like that was my. Yeah, method or that was like generally the way that I thought about it. I was like, well, because he's so great, and I feel privileged watching somebody so play basketball so intelligently. Yeah. I want him to win, and I don't want these like you know three point shooting you know upstart warriors to ever beat the genius of LeBron James. And now LeBron is like kind of like you know like he it, that's not going to be a thing that one can vote for. So I just go with the punches, and I just decide what's the trollier team to take, and I just take that team. All right, Isaac. Your lightning round question. You grew up here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I think you grew up, what, within like a 15-minute drive of Oracle Arena? Right? Yeah. Um, why are you not a Warriors fan? Oh, I thought you grew up in Houston. How you no, 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 he grew up here. <laughs> I just uh, I just liked Hakeem when I was a young kid. Uh, yeah, I love and, Hakeem too, yeah. And, you know, I, I started liking him when I was like 10, and then they won two titles when I was 12 and 13, and so that was just like, at that point, it was like, you know, and then it just kept going. So I don't know. All my but, friends are Warriors fans, but does that transfer over though? Like he came on a title, therefore I care about Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Like, I mean, it just kind of kept going year after year. And so, really, yeah, yeah. Then, I met Isaac for like uh, at a bar for the NBA lottery two years ago, and Isaac was like, he was like, legitimately nervous about the rockets getting one of the first three picks. that's so weird to me <laughs> yeah yeah but um do you feel like okay so that is a good argument against the foreign players can't inspire young children American there you children go thing. there we go like Isaac yeah. Turner abandoned the the warrior i don't even know who was on the warrior team chris mullen mitch richmond tim hardaway oh wait so it was a cool warriors team. It was. weber yeah was this a contrarian thing? Like, no, no, just... no. I, I just like Hakeem. I don't know. What, okay. what I mean, I, I was a Jordan fan at the time too, but I have no feelings for the Bulls after. I'm hoping that I don't care about the Warriors after Steph is gone because these West Coast games are impossible to watch from the East Coast. So I actually like don't want to have a team. Are you again. just moving to the West Coast? Like, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah. Like I would love to. But... human being, <laughs> you know. Um, all right. Last thing we talked about and then we got to go. Predictions for the series. Isaac, what is your prediction for the NBA finals? Boston and seven. Okay. Do you have, what's your, give me two, two sentences for why. I think that their defense is phenomenal and I think they're going to have a little too much size for the Warriors. And um, I think they'll steal one of the games in Golden State. Okay. Andy, what is your prediction? Um, I'll go Warriors and six. Warriors and six. I was going to say seven, which is the safe, but I figured I should live a little. Wow, that's bold. I love wow. that. I okay. think, I mean, analysis, I don't, I don't have very much analysis. I, I, my, my big takeaway is that I think the Warriors have been playing better every round and have been a different team than they were in the regular season, right, with the three core players and their benches and all that. People are giving Boston credit based on how they beat the Nets, I think primarily, because it looks so good. They beat, and, they beat the Bucs with Giannis. Without Middleton. 
Okay, but still. Jason was Tatum was being guarded by Grayson Allen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and I think a lot of the honest. I think a lot of the skepticism towards the Warriors is how bad they looked against Memphis, right? But like, like talking about blowouts, I think they gave up that game halfway through, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, right? But I don't think they were like 60 points worse than Memphis. I think they just gave up and decided to win the next game. I don't think they were. How do I, how do I put this? No, I mean, I this think is the Warriors criticism came from the fact that they had like seven straight games where they're like turning the ball over in the weirdest ways, right? I know. Well, that's the thing. I, I am curious if the Boston defense works the same yeah. way as the Memphis defense, which was like freaking out the Warriors, you know, for yeah. three or four games in a row. I, I guess the question that I mean, the meta question is like, I something was weird has happened. Well, I feel like Warriors fans feel something weird happened in the Mavs series. We're going in, a lot of the smart people chose the Mavs. And now that the series turned out Warriors in five, people are like not are just pretending they didn't pick the Mavs in six. And like they're not giving the Warriors credit for that. They're just saying, well, Mavs were a worse team and they had no bench, they had no role players. So obviously the Warriors won. Um, so uh, it just kind of seems, seems weird to me. I think rooted in some sort of desire to see Luca. And then when they realized Luca wasn't it, they just kind of say, well, the Warriors just missed shots or the, the Mavs just missed shots and the Warriors were lucky. The Mavs did just miss shots, to be fair. I'm going to pick, um, I'm picking Boston in six. I want to pick them in five. In my, <laughs> in my head, I have this like person who's going to compile the NBA picks of every leftist pocket <laughs> podcast. And, you know, it's going to be like, oh, well, Daniel Denver picked the. <laughs> picked so you one. really think the Boston Celtics? Are oh, you yeah, on? I think the Celtics are going to kill the Warriors. Okay. Um, and I, I just think that their defense is unstoppable. I think that they, there is something weird where they lose every single close game, right? But I don't think a lot of these games are going to be particularly close. I don't think the Warriors have come up against a team that's as long and as big and as athletic as the, as the Celtics. You think their defense will be better than Memphis's? Yeah. I mean, also yeah. Memphis didn't have their best player for like half that series. You know? And made their defense much better. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, like, I still think that to ask that team to like go out and beat the Warriors is difficult, you know? And I also think that they're the Memphis defense is good, right? But you have Tatum, Brown, Robert Williams will be back. You have Marcus Smart, right? You have like no points. You have Al Horford. You have no points of weakness on that team. And I just think that the Warriors just kind of like undisciplined and weird to me still. And like Jordan Poole, like I don't know who's going to pay Jordan Poole, but like I wouldn't pay Jordan Poole. I think Jordan, like Jordan Poole, first of all, is the worst defensive player, I think, in the NBA. <laughs> and secondly, like he's just kind of like a spaz. Like the team, like I think that he scores a lot of points, but I don't think the team is necessarily better with him on the court, right? Because he gives up so many. And then he like plays at this tempo that none of the other guys are really playing at. And like, I just think like, he's kind of like, like, he's like a bad Jamal Crawford or or he's basically just Jamal Crawford at this point. Right. And it's like, was Jamal Crawford really like a guy who was gonna, you know, know. change series or anything like that? I don't think so. So Hmm. like, they're going to get swallowed up by this Boston defense, I think. And I also think that Udoka is a much better coach than Kerr in terms of making adjustments, like the adjustments that Udoka made in game seven against the defenses that the heat were giving them like all the layups that they got you know through like passes on cutting like i don't know like i just think that guy is a great coach and so i think they're gonna i don't know celtics in five fuck it (laughs) all right well isaac thank you for coming on the show my pleasure thanks for having me yeah um 
Andy, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to say. Oh, yeah. We do this every single week. If you'd like to support us, uh, go to goodbye.substack.com. There you will get access to our Discord server. How many people do we have on this Discord now? Do we have over 1,000 now? Like At some point, we had like 700 or something. Like I think that. at least 800. Yeah, eight to 900 people. Um, they talk about everything from, what, Korean dramas to everything everywhere all at once to politics to left organizing to whatever food um i went to like the weirdest korean restaurant i've ever been to in my life in san francisco i talked a little bit about that and i mean it was bad um maybe i'll talk about my family's back actually i want to talk about it um and uh yeah you get access to that and you get some bonus content uh it's five dollars a month we really appreciate all the support that you've given us over the past what two years now that's fucking crazy um it helps us keep doing this podcast and uh yeah if you need to get in touch with us it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com andy and isaac thank you and we'll see you next week thanks isaac